Then go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 18. If you haven't got a Bible, if you're visiting with us, that's all right, because I'm going to read it in a moment anyway. But if you want to lean over the person next to you, that would be fine too. I'm going to try and do a message this morning entitled, Why God Hates Religion. Luke chapter 18, and let's just pray before we dive in on this together. Well, Lord, I do pray for your grace. Lord, you know how I have prayed in private for this moment. And so now, Lord, I pray in public. Lord, open our eyes. Open our eyes to behold the glory of the gospel. To behold the glory of what your son has done in our place. Lord, would you help me, a weak man, to proclaim your strong and incredible word And would you take these words and change lives in your abounding grace. Amen. Before we look at this scripture together, let me explain a little bit about what we're even trying to do this morning. In fact, what we're trying to do at Reason for God, full stop. Why why do we have these mornings? Why is it important to us as a local church to have Visitor Sundays where we open up questions like religion? You see, if I was to take a microphone into my hometown, which is Hornsby at the moment, and I took a microphone into the centre of that city, as is, and said, you know what, why are you not a Christian to people? And I started to go around with a microphone. I wonder what they would say. Now, the truth is, probably you'd find it hard to get them to talk and actually say anything. But imagine that you could actually get them to own up as to why they're not a Christian. I think in all reality, I'd get a lot of different answers. I think for some people they'd say, well, I'm not a Christian because I just think it's boring. I think some people say, well, I'm not a Christian because I just think it's untrue or irrelevant. I think for others they'd say, you know, I'm not a Christian because I don't think you can believe the Bible. I mean, it's been proved time and time again, right, that there's just so many mistakes in it, so I, I just wouldn't want to believe in that. For other people they say, well, I'm not a Christian because if God really exists, then he would surely never allow suffering. And if he does exist and there is suffering, then he's just horrendous. So why would I want to follow him? Why would I want to be a Christian? For other people, they claim that there's no point in Christianity because science has disproved it. And so there's a question of science. And as a local church, then, we want to try and answer those types of questions because they're real questions. And as a church, we shouldn't cocoon ourselves off from those questions and just go into ghetto mentality and just think, well, they're all good questions and let's just tell everybody Jesus loves them. That's not enough. They're very valid questions and very important questions that need answering, which is why we do mornings like this. We're keen to answer topics like this. We're keen to actually take on topics that people are actually interested in in real life rather than what we think they might be interested in and actually answer them. And today, then, I come to this topic of religion. Because the truth is, I think if I did take that microphone into Hornsby City Centre and I did ask people, you know what, why are you not a Christian? I think some of them, in fact, many of them, if they were honest, would say, I'm not a Christian because I think religion stinks. And I hate it. It's horrible. For some people, the idea of religion or the fact that religion in their mind, it just causes trouble. For others, they think that the world would just be a better place without religion, and they hate it for so many different reasons. John Lennon, 
We heard Paul McCartney the other day at the Olympics singing, Hey Jude. Well, John Lennon's most famous song was Imagine. And there's a line in it that simply says this. He says, Imagine there is no heaven above us. Imagine there is no hell below us. Imagine all the people living for themselves. And he makes it sound so nice in the lyrics, doesn't he? Imagine all the people living for themselves. Oh, it's beautiful. No, it's not. It's anarchy. It's called anarchy. That's what happens if everybody actually just lives for themselves. It is absolute hell on earth. It is complete and utter anarchy. But he wrote that song because ultimately he was another guy that just hates religion. He just looks on and thinks, well, it stinks. It's trying to control people and it's hypocritical. So imagine if everybody just lived for themselves. Thanks for playing, Mr. Lennon. Other people, if you go on the internet and actually put in, I hate religion, it's surprising how many different things come up. There are a lot of comments if you actually put in, I hate religion, onto, the, onto Google. This is one that I came across this week. One person said this. This was their reason why they, they hate religion. They said, religion, where do I start? Firstly, one thing that really bugs me is the way that most religions set out a list of beliefs that all of its followers must accept as their own. I don't understand how any rational, sensible person can accept values like this unconditionally without reassessing the facts for themselves. Secondly, religion is redundant. Its purposes before the modern age were to keep law and order in society by setting out what is right and what is wrong and enforcing the law with punishment to keep people as they're doing as they're told. But today, we have our own legal systems which have replaced religion. They are an improvement on religion's way of doing things as they are challengeable and amendable and so laws can be regulated to ensure that they are moral by the people. The other purpose of religion was to explain the world, to answer big questions like how do we get here and what happens to us when we die. But again, this need has been replaced by science, which on top of striving to answer our questions also has the advantage of being true. You know, this topic of religion in this individual's mind is just pointless because it, religion just causes trouble. It tries to hold people in. It tries to be restrictive. And it's just redundant because it's been replaced by science anyway. Another person said as follows. They said, if I am right, then religious fundamentalists, i.e. religious people, will not go to heaven because there is no heaven. But if they are right, I still don't think they're going to go to heaven because they are hypocrites. I think that's another big reason why people hate religion. One, because they see it as restrictive. But another reason, because in all reality, the religious people they know... They look at them and you think, you know what, to be honest, you are just one big hypocrite. You think you're better than the rest. You think that you're claiming all these things, but I know your life and I've seen your life. And you're really not that good at all. You're just a hypocrite. You know, one of the challenges I have as a pastor is that I encounter this all the time. And I encounter this all the time because unlike you, who when people say, what do you do for a living? You can say, well, a teacher or something of that nature. I get to the question of what do you do for a living? And I say, well, I'm a, I'm a pastor. And that is always an interesting moment in my life. And it's usually a, a particularly interesting moment. It's been an interesting moment in the UK. It's continued to be a very interesting moment here. Because when that topic comes in, the reaction is, is often very varied. 
You see, I don't tend to look like a vicar to some people. I don't look like a minister, like the last thing I expected. So the guys I play soccer with, that ask with on a Saturday, the last thing they are expecting me to say is, oh, I'm a pastor. And they go, yeah. They're like, yeah. It's an awkward moment. But the conversation of what do you do for a living always comes up, and the answer is always interesting. For some people, they just go quiet. So what do you do for a living? I'm a pastor. Tumbleweed is going across the floor. You think, okay, where are we going here? And you can see that they're reliving the last few days where they've known you in their lives. And you, they're reliving the F-bombs that they've said. They're reliving the amount of times they've mentioned the name of Jesus to you already in not a thank you Jesus type of way, but in a very different type of way. They're reliving these moments and they're thinking, oh my gosh. And usually so they go quiet. And some people go, that, oh, I'm, I'm so sorry, I... I've sworn. <laughs> At which point you say, I'm okay with it. It's, it's fine. I'm, I'm a big boy. I've heard swearing before. And, and I like the fact that you mention the name of Jesus a lot. I mean, that's just nice. Because it just makes me feel at home. You know, it, It's an interesting moment for people. Some people, they're really just, the way it comes about is, is they say, you know what? What do you do for a living? And you say, I'm a pastor. I was at a hairdresser's once. and I'm a pastor. He said, oh. Do you do like the swirly bits on ceilings and walls? I said, uh, that's a plasterer. <laughs> so no, I, I don't do swirly bits. I'm really not that good at that. But I'm a pastor. I work for a church. And she said, oh, right. So you're going on holiday this year? And, and it was a complete different change of direction. And she had no clue, really, what that meant. And if she did have a clue, this was like an awkward moment for her. And she just wanted to bail out. For other people, having gone quiet and having gone a bit awkward, they then, in all reality, look at you with a degree of disdain. And it's because as soon as you say you're a pastor, they put you in the box of religion. And in all honesty, they hate it. They assume in that moment, well, you must be one of these pastors then, one of these dudes that actually causes bigots. You must be one of these guys that in the way you preach causes people to just look down on others and think that everybody else isn't as good as them. You must be one of the hypocrites. And so you sense, by and large, a degree of disdain that you have to work hard to get around and help them see, listen, I ain't judging you, buddy. That's not what I'm here for. So if you could not judge me, that would be nice, and I won't judge you. But there is a degree of disdain. And I think for all of us, where we're bold to tell people about Jesus, for some... That does indeed cause problems, and it causes problems because there is a hatred of religion out there. You know, one of the saving graces for me in that, and I think for all of us, is to be able to take those people in that moment to one that hates religion way more than they do. One that hates religion and stood opposed to religion his entire life. One who we read about here in Luke 18, namely Jesus. There is one that disdains religion far more than them, and his name is Jesus. Jesus is the one that speaks out against religion and its clarity and what it is, and its hypocrisy and what it stands for, what it doesn't stand for. Jesus is the one who regularly, throughout the Gospels, goes toe-to-toe with the religious people and gives them a real hard time. If you Google, I hate religion, and then put in after that, religious hypocrisy, you will find numerous quotes come up. 80% of them are quotes by Jesus. He hates it more than you do. 
It's not Stephen Hawking that has the most things. It's not Richard Dawkins. It's not Christopher Hitchens. But Jesus Christ that says the most about religious hypocrisy. And so today then, I want to take the question then of why? Why does Jesus, why does God hate religion so much? Because it could be a surprise to hear that news, that Jesus is the ultimate opponent against religion. Well, today in Luke 18, I want to not only answer the question of the fact that he does, but I want to look at why. And so let's read together from verse 19 through to the end of verse 14. This is a parable. It's a parable that Jesus is at this point telling to the religious leaders, the religion of the time. And this is what he says. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortionists, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, time after time in the Gospels, all the way through them, Jesus is encountering and going toe-to-toe with religion. The Pharisees are the epitome of religion in this area. But in this text, it's an unusual text throughout the Gospels, because in this text, the Savior of the world not only indicates to us the actual fact that he's opposing religion, but in actual fact, he really explains to us why. He explains to us why God hates religion. That's what he expounds in this text. So there's three points that I want to look at this morning. Make it easy to follow. Number one, the heart of religion. What religion really is by way of definition. Number two, the failure of religion. Why Is it that religion so fails? So important to understanding that if we understand why God hates it. And then number three, the hope of the gospel. What is it that Jesus came to bring that made this tax collector justified? So number one, the heart of religion. Look again at verse 9. He says, He also told this parable... To some, listen, because this really gets at the heart of religion, to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. That, in a nutshell, gets to the absolute heart of what religion is all about. The heart of religion is really twofold. Firstly, it's about individuals, people who trust in themselves for righteousness, literally self-righteousness. See, to be righteous in this context, what he's talking about here is simply right with God, acceptable 
before God. And what we see clearly is these Pharisees, these ones who believed because of the way they lived, they believed that because of the way they lived, what they did do and what they didn't do, they were then in fact righteous. They're accepted by God because of themselves, because of their behavior. That's what the heart of religion is all about. Religion is all about, I can do it. That's what these guys thought they could do. They thought, I can by myself, make myself right with God. And the fruit of it, what is it? As it says there, and treated others with contempt. Religion always does that in people's lives. Where religiosity is apparent, there will also be, I submit to you, contempt. And it will be there all the time. My mum grew up in a, in, a, in a church where she was told that if she was found by Jesus in the cinema, when he comes back, what would he do? And I remember her telling me all about it. And you think, well, what do you think he would do? I mean, we'd probably say, how did the movie go? I mean, what, what do you think? He's, he's certainly not going to be a problem. Why would it be a problem? She was also told that you shouldn't wear lipstick. Not sure why, but apparently it's demonic or something. She, she was told that you shouldn't watch the telly because the aerials on the roof are like the devil's horns. It's like... No, I, no, I think they're the aerials for my television. You know, but, but people live in this type of religious nutshell that they just think, well, we've got to protect these different things. And I think we've all heard of people, we've all seen people that live in a certain way that is slightly holier than thou. You know what I'm saying? So you encounter them and, and instantly they're trying to assess you and they're working out all what you don't do and what they do. And they start to talk like this. To say, oh, 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 so you watch that program. Oh, yeah, please leave me alone. It, it, because there's just this sense of, you think you're better than me. You think you're up yourself. Well, that's what religion does. Religiosity, by very nature, I think that I can do it. I can make my standing before the God, myself. And then I look around and I think, well, you can't. You're not doing what I'm doing. And that is religion in a nutshell. People that think they can do it all by themselves and then spend their lives looking around with contempt at others. Is it any surprise then that people hate it? Is it any surprise that people look on and hate religion by very nature? Well, Jesus then tells them a story. He tells these religious people at the time a story. Verse 10. It says, Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee. Bingo. That's who he's talking to. Clue. And the other, a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, Be merciful to me, a sinner. You know, religion in this story is Mr. Pharisee, okay? Mr. Pharisee is Mr. Religion. That's how it all works. That's how this whole parable holds together. Religion, by very nature, is the Pharisee in this story. We see two men going into the temple to pray. It's symbolic. The temple in that era was the place where people would meet with God. It was the dwelling place of God, and it's symbolically then where people would meet and encounter God. And so we see two men going into the temple, the meeting place of God, to pray, to to be with him. Both men are standing alone, but for very different reasons. 
You see, this is not a Saturday, what today would be for us, a Sunday. This is not a meeting time. This is not when the whole church would gather together to worship God. This was outside of that. The tax collector arrived by himself because he's ashamed of himself. He's aware of who he is before God. He's aware of the mistakes he makes. A tax collector of the time would be an absolute loan shark. They were out to rip people off. This man seems to have come to a place of realizing that is not right. And so he's come to the Lord by himself because he'd be embarrassed with other people around. He's aware that his life is a shambles and he needs mercy. But the Pharisee is also alone. Not because he's aware of needing mercy. He's alone because he wants a private audience with God. Because he thinks he's pretty good. He wants to spend some time with God by himself so that he can let God know how well he's done this week because he's fasted and he tithes. He just wants to earn some more brownie points from God in his perception. And so he stands before God. Rumor has it that this guy probably had, as you read different commentaries, this guy even probably had his own standing place in the temple that was assigned just for him. So he wanted to go visit it. Here I am, your favorite son. You know, this is what this guy was like. And so two men in the temple, the meeting place of God, two men standing alone. And this Pharisee then in that moment prays the most odious of prayers, doesn't he? God, I'm here. Your favorite. Still fasting. Still giving. Oh, and I thank you that I'm not like him. Because he stinks. Look, look at him. He's a tax collector. But I thank you that I'm doing pretty good. But he's horrible. Look at him. Lord, I thank you that I'm not like him. That's religion. That is what the Savior is trying to draw attention to. And the point of the story is that religion stinks. It does not work. It is inappropriate. It is the height of pride. See, religion by very nature screams of self-righteousness. It screams of individuals thinking that in and of themselves they can make right with God. Something that he says cannot take place. And it screams then of contempt towards others, of pride, of above and beyond people in every way. People that walk around seemingly on six inches of air just to let everybody know how good they are and how bad they are. But if only they could be more like me, everything would be all right. And Jesus looks at that and says, you know what? I hate that. No wonder people hate it in the world. It's hideous, isn't it? Well, Jesus hates it as well. He hates it because it is proud. But he hates it more because it isn't true. It fails. And that's point two, the failure of religion. Verse 13 again. He says, but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. This is the result. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. The other is the Pharisee, the one that thinks he's justified. No, he he wasn't justified. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Why does God hate religion? God hates religion because religion was and never will be enough. 
He hates religion because religion fails. It promises so much and yet delivers absolutely nothing. Religion in and of itself will never be enough to earn God's acceptance. This man, even though he thought he was doing all the right things before God, or even though he thought that he was stopped doing all the things that he shouldn't do before God, the point of the story is it wasn't enough. Never was. Never will be. The things that he did and didn't do were never enough. And you know what? In a nutshell, that really does sum up the problem of religion. Because it's never going to be enough. Now, for those of you that don't know me, if you're visiting, I have three children who, other than my wife, who is my favorite part of my family, they bring in the after effects of that. I have a 10-year-old, Josh. He's my soccer player. So we go and watch him play sports, and he is just a gentle and kind young man. I have Amy, who's our brainiac, and she likes to go on Daddy's computer and do things like PowerPoint. And you think, you're eight. Do you not like play with dolls? I mean, how does this work? And, but she wants to play on Daddy's PowerPoint. And then I have Lydia, who's just hard to describe, but out there. You know, she is just fully out there. She's five years old, going on 25. She's already told me that next year I want to play, I want to play soccer next year, and I'm going to have them. And you're like, oh, you will, you will, there's no doubt about it. And Lydia comes from the, the I can do it model of just life. You know, anything that can, needs doing, Lydia thinks she can do it and will try to do it. So you say, oh, I could just love a cup of tea. I can do it. No, don't do it. You don't want to be doing that, babe. No need. I just need to cut this out. I can do it. No, don't do that. She comes from this model of I can do whatever's necessary. But most of the time, she can't. Most of the time, she can't do it. So I went to soccer practice the other night, and because Emma was serving you ladies at the Wisdom for Women, my, my kids had to come to soccer training with me, um, which, was, which was fun. It was nice, like spectators throughout the whole time. And so we have to go over a fence um, to get into the oval that we play in. And, and usually you take a gate, but not us. We, we like to park as close to the pit, chances as the pitch, and then we just try and go over the fence. And, and Josh and Amy can make it, but Lydia, she's, she's short, and she's struggling a bit. And so on the way back out, so I helped her on the way in, but on the way back out, I went to help her. She said, no, Dad, I can do it. And you're like, oh my gosh, um, okay, we'll give it a go, we'll see how we get on. And she's, she's there, and she's trying to get over this fence. And I, Do you want a bit of help? And, no! I can do, I've got it, I can do this. And you're like, okay. So she's getting about three quarters of the way up, and she's sort of starting to panic. There's that look of fear in her eyes. Like, do, do you want some help? Like, yes, I think I need some help. Yeah, okay, that's good. I, I'll give you a hand over. But Lydia was convinced up until that point, I can do it. I'll do this. I can do this. That's exactly what religion says. Religion screams of, I don't need any help. I got it. I can do it. I've read it. Keep the rules. Thanks for playing. I can do it. That's what religion is all about. And yet the message of the Bible is that you can't do it. The whole message that runs within this book is that we can't do it. So religion says, I can do it. And if you just read your Bible, it screams, you cannot do it. And you will never be able to do it. See, Genesis chapter 1, we read, in the beginning, God made the world. In Genesis chapter 1, right up front as we study the theme of you cannot do it, right at the start in Genesis, the theme is introduced with us, God making mankind, making us to find unity with him, joy in him, to find our identity 
and our security and our purpose in himself. We were the pinnacle of creation and we were called by God to be with him and to rule over the earth. But by Genesis 3, we decided that we didn't fancy that. And instead, we exchanged the creator for the created. That's what sin is all about. It is rebellion against God. It is saying to God, thanks, but no thanks. I'm just going to do my thing and I don't want to worship you in any, in, in any way. That's how sin came into the world. And because of sin, we're completely separate from God. He separated us from himself. And so way back early on in the Bible, we see then this introduction of sin and this introduction of separation from God. And the hunt then is on to finding out how do I get back? How can I make right with God? And everybody knows it. That's why there's so many religions in our world. Everybody's trying to find a way back. Everybody trying to find a way back to God to be justified by him, to be accepted by him again. But the Bible is simply clear in the way it says time and time again, you'll never be able to do it. There's no way back. In and of yourself, there's nothing you can do. See, growing up, I used to think of this as a rule book. That's why I was bored of it. And so as soon as I outgrew the sort of Bible with pictures in, I outgrew the Bible because the pictures were different and the words were boring. I thought of it as a rule book and I thought that's all it was. And I think a lot of people can think like that. I think for other people, they just think of it as a self-help book. And it's just a little book with, you know, niceties in. And if I'm really sick in hospital, I might whip it out and read a psalm. And it might make me feel better about myself. And that helps me get on with my day. But the Bible ultimately is neither of those things. It's not a rule book. It's not a self-help book. It's a story. It's the story of redemption. It's the story of the greatest rescue ever told. And the story begins then with the whole premise that you will never be able to do it. You've wronged against God. You are not right with God. And in of yourself, there's, there's no way back. Romans 3 verse 10 then. Paul says, no one is righteous. Not even one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Verse 23 follows up by saying, For all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. All. Everyone. Every single individual that has been birthed into this planet falls short. Falls short of that which they were made for, namely finding their identity and security and purpose and joy in God, but instead has traded that for creation. Every single individual. Paul himself talks in the, in the book of Philippians how he was from the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of heroes. As to the law, the Pharisee, he was a Pharisee. As to zeal, he could outdo them all. As to righteousness, he had sought to keep the law absolutely meticulously. He had done, in theory, in a religious way, everything right. But he understood it would never be enough. And so he says in Philippians 3, he says, But whatever gain I had... I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. He understood that I can never do enough. But there is one who has done enough. 
And so why does God hate religion? God hates religion because it will never be enough. It is a lie. It is a screaming lie. Is it any wonder then that Jesus goes toe-to-toe with the Pharisees? Because in effect what he is saying is you are lying. You're claiming to everybody that there is a way by rules. That if they just can do this and not do that, they will be right with God. But I am God and I'm telling you that's not enough. It's no wonder then that Jesus, as God, went toe-to-toe with them so often because he wanted to help them see it is not enough. Religion, and through rules, no one can ever be justified. However much you do, however much you don't do, it will not be enough. God hates religion because religion fails. But there is still a hope. There's a great hope. And that's why this story continues. Point three, the hope of the gospel. Let's look at verse 14 again. What a great verse this is. He says, I tell you, this man. Hang on, hang on. Which man? The tax collector. The loan shark, the one who had come in by himself, the one who's standing by himself, the one who beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. This man went down to his house justified. Folks, this is scandalous grace. But the whole point is this man who didn't deserve it comes in and says, God, I know I don't deserve it. And God has made a way for this man in that moment to be justified, for it to be just as if I'd never sinned. To be declared righteous, even though he's not. God had made a way for this man to go home being completely justified. There is clearly still a hope. There is clearly still a hope for every individual in this room, and that hope is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, the truth is, We can never do enough in and of ourselves. There is no way back to God in and of ourselves. Mankind has failed. And yet way back in Genesis 3.15, just three chapters into your Bible, God promises that he will send one. And he will send an individual who will make a way back. One who will come as a saviour. One who will come to return us to the God that made us. One who will come to make a way for us to once again be right with God. And in the book of Luke, we are introduced to that one because his name is Jesus. In Luke chapter 1, we see Jesus being born to the Virgin Mary, born in Bethlehem, just as it had been prophesied hundreds of years before this event. In Luke chapter 2 onwards then we see Jesus in all grace living his life in perfection, in joy, helping people, healing people, performing miracles, claiming time and time again, I'm the one that God has promised. I am God. I have come to rescue you. Time and time again he repeats to people and lets them know religion is not enough, but I am. That's why I've come. I've come as the promised one to make a way back to God. And in Luke chapter 17, verse 11, we read, On the way to Jerusalem. 
This very text is written in context where Jesus is now on the way to doing that which he'd always come to do. He's on the way to Calvary. He's on the way to die in a bloody mess on a cross. And in Luke chapter 13, then we see Jesus dying on a cross with his father turning his face away and Jesus declaring once he had drank God's wrath to the full, it is finished. See, the price of your potential justification was not cheap. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And God is a righteous and holy judge. He can't just stand before sinners and say, well, you know, never mind. And the sinner comes in and says, well, you know, I, I made a really bad mess of my life and I've done lots of things that you claim I shouldn't have done in the Bible. He's not going to, in, this, in that moment, just say, well, okay, well, ne- never mind. What type of judge would that be? What would it be in a court of law in Australia if you knew a man had raped a woman and he goes to the judge and says, oh, look, I'm really sorry, I know I shouldn't have. And he says... Well, never mind. Okay. We would be screaming at that and say, that is, that's not just. That's not right. That is unacceptable. And the reason why we feel that justice is because we've been created in God's image and he feels that justice too. He is holy and blameless. And so God in his grace and in his majesty and in his righteousness knows that the only way for somebody to be forgiven is for somebody else to take their place. Somebody else to take their place and endure the punishment that they had earned on their lives. That's exactly what Jesus Christ is doing at Calvary. He's dying on a cross between God and between mankind. And he is dying and saying, it is finished. I've now made a way for you. I've made a way that if you put your faith in me as Lord and Saviour, you can now have access to God again. For your sin has, has, has to be punished. But if you'll put your faith in me, then I've paid the price of your sin on the cross. I've endured your wrath. I've endured the judgment and punishment of the righteous judge. My friends, that's the hope of the gospel. 2,000 years ago, this tax collector had a hope. And his hope was the personal work of Jesus Christ. As he went into that temple that day and he said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. He only had one hope. Not a judge that would say, oh, well, never mind. But his hope was Jesus. That one would come, the very one that was telling the story, and would make a way through faith in him to have access back to God the one he was made for. My friends, I want to encourage you. We today can have that hope too. John 3.16 says it this way. He says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. He made a way for you to be reconciled to God. And that's why the hope of the gospel is is so amazing. Religion fails. Religion is never enough. It is the right instinct knowing that we have offended God and they need to get back to God. It's the right instinct. 
But it's not enough. The only way is Jesus. He's the only one that lived a perfect life. He's the only one that made the ultimate atonement in their place. And he is the only one as God that said, you know what then? Through faith in me, you can have eternal life. You can have justification. You can go away accepted by God. You know, last week I told the church, for those of you that were here, about two boys, brothers that were playing on the Mississippi River sandbanks. It was basically these boys, for those of you that weren't here, that were playing on the Mississippi sandbanks. And the mum was looking for them, the mum was trying to find them. And they'd been missing for some time. And so she called in the police, she called in the search and rescue. And eventually, one of them, somebody spotted one of the search party, the younger brother's head, just poking out the top of the sand. Basically, when sand in the Mississippi River settles, it dries out, but often it encrusts over holes. And the boy had fallen down the hole. And so they get to this young boy, they see his face, and they start to dig him out. And as soon as they start to dig him out, he starts to breathe and talk. And they say, you know what, where's your brother? And with tears coming down his eyes, he just says, I'm standing on his shoulders. The older brother had pulled the younger onto his shoulders. The older brother had realized the younger brother would not survive without his help. And so he takes the fall and he puts the younger brother on his shoulders and says, now you live. My friends, that's what Jesus has done for us. With religion, we're dead. But with Jesus, we will always live. Because there's life. And that in abundance in his name. Religion fails. But Christ wins. And grace reigns. And so here's my question then to finish. Where do you see your face in this scene of Luke chapter 18? Where are you? Are you a Pharisee? Maybe that's where you see your face. Are you a disciple? Someone who's looking on that day and, and listening to Jesus? Or are you just part of the crowd? You see, the reality is, as they walked along this day on the way to Jerusalem, he's addressing the Pharisees, but the disciples were there, and there would always be a crowd, an entourage, following Jesus, trying to hear what he's got to say. And so where do you see your face? Pharisee? Crowd? Disciple? My friends, if you're a Christian here today, then I want to encourage you, your face like mine then, is predominantly seen here as a disciple. We're one of the ones walking along with Jesus in this moment, constantly trying to hear what he's got to say, trying to come back to his word and and listen to what is he saying. And folks, I want to encourage you, if you are a Christian, if you are a disciple of Christ, I want to encourage you in this moment to guard against the application of leaving today, effectively now, Pharisee slamming. And I say that because I think it's very easily done. To proceed and chat over lunch about, you know what, I heard what Dave was saying about the Pharisees. I know people like that. Oh, I do. Do you know this person? Because I I know that. That is exactly what they're like. And Dave's right. You know, Jesus is really right. It stinks. It is wrong. It is just appalling that they do these different things. 
My friends, we must guard against that attitude because as soon as that attitude arrives, behold the Pharisee then in us. Because the reason why we're saying that is because we in that moment think we're better. I can't believe they would be like that. But behold, in that moment, you're a Pharisee. The way to apply this text as a disciple is to realize your face is not only that of a disciple. Your face is that of the tax collector. That's us. We're the one who stands in God's presence and says, Lord, I've got nothing. And folks, for me, I haven't got nothing. I've got nothing. Lord, I come to you. I haven't done many of the things you want me to do. And I have done many things you don't want me to do. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Folks, that's your story as well. Nothing in our hands do we bring. Simply to the cross we claim. What do you bring to your salvation? I'll tell you what you're saying. The, the only thing you bring to your salvation is your sin. The only thing that you bring to your salvation are the nails in your pockets that were driven into the hands of Jesus Christ. And so we must, by grace, apply this message by realizing our faces are not only the tax collector, are not only the disciple, it's the tax collector as well. Folks, if that doesn't humble us towards others and provoke gratitude towards God and assurance before God, then we've missed the point of the Savior's story. It should humble us. Christians should be the people walking around the world. Christians should be people that are walking around Sydney shaking their heads in utter disbelief that they found mercy. That they were justified. Because Christians are on the end of scandalous grace. It has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with Christ and him alone. And so if you're a Christian, then see your face as a disciple. But see your face also as the tax collector. And let that filter through into the way you think and the way you are and the way you live. You know, maybe you're here today, though, and you're an unbeliever. You've never put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Well, maybe you see your face in the crowd, the inquisitive crowd that are always trying to hang on with Jesus and They have questions for Jesus and they're inquisitive about what's going on with Jesus. Well, if that's you, I I want to encourage you, come on Christianity Explored. Because that's what it's for. You know, rock up in two weeks' time, come and have a meal with us at the Bluegum Hotel and we'll start to talk to you about Jesus. And any questions you have, start start to ask them. Start just to listen in to other people asking questions. If you see your face in the crowd and you are intrigued by Jesus, I want to encourage you, don't stop then in the crowd, but start to ask questions so that you can really bottom out, who is Jesus? If he is not God, then we'll all close our Bibles and go home because there's better things we can do with our time. But if he is God, then that will change your whole life because everything changes if Jesus really was God. So come on Christianity Explored and find out if you see your face in the crowd. But maybe for some of you, you see your faces in the parable. 
Maybe you've been a Pharisee. You wouldn't consider yourself a Pharisee and you're not, as far as you know, nasty to other people. But maybe in all reality, you have lived your life thinking that you can do it. You think, well, I, I go to church sometimes and I'm a nice person and I do everything right. I, you know, I've got, I, I try and give money towards compassion because that, that's good because that helps overseas kids and I look after my pets and the kids seem all right. I'm quite nice to my husband and quite nice to my wife. And it, Maybe that's the way we think that I, I, I think I've done enough. I think I could stand before God and he's going to say, all right, you know, I, he's not going to say that. Man is, man is destined to die once and after that faces judgment. And the Bible is clear, everyone falls short. And because he's a righteous judge, that must be punished. Maybe on the other hand, you see yourself as the tax collector. Maybe you've come in this morning and in some ways you are embarrassed. You look around and you think, you know what, I bet all these people are just really like Jesus and I'm just not. Well, let me encourage you as I look around. I know these people better than you. They're not Jesus. And they're looking right back at this guy who's not Jesus either. You know what? As you look around, I want you to realize this is a group of people who are aware they're not like Jesus. That's why they're here. Because they're amazed by grace. They're amazed by Jesus. And live in light of Jesus and his scandalous grace. And so if you have arrived here today embarrassed, aware that you need mercy, then don't be embarrassed. Because that's where we all started too. And instead, I want to encourage you then to put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. If you are the Pharisee, your religion will never do enough. If you are the tax collector, your embarrassment should not stop you. Because Jesus Christ came for you. And said, if you will put your faith in me as Lord and Savior, then you will go home today justified. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified. My friends, if that be your desire and you are not a believer, then I want to urge you, before you go home today, then talk to me, talk to the person who brought you, or just as we close in song today, just say, Lord, I believe in you. Would you have mercy on me, a sinner? Put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and you, like the tax collector then, will go home justified. Would that be your story? And wouldn't that just be like Jesus to save you? For there is no hope in religion, but there is a glorious hope in the gospel. And his name is Jesus. Let's pray. Well, Lord, I do thank you for your word. And I thank you for the clarity of your word. Lord, how kind for you to come to earth and then not only just quietly get on with the task in hand, but shout and scream of the glory of all that you have come to do. Lord, I pray for all of us in this moment, would we be overtaken and affected by the greatest rescue mission ever told? Would we be affected by your work and your ultimate work through Calvary through which all of us who would put our faith in him will be saved? And Lord, I pray then for every individual in the room, would we go home justified, not through religion, that will never be enough, 
but justified through Jesus Christ and him alone. Nothing in our hands we bring, simply to the cross we cling. Would that be our story, Lord? In Jesus' name, amen.